0: Good morning. morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. A couple quick things. Um, First, this is a new building, as many of you know, and we're still getting used to things. Um, The spotlights aren't working this morning. We're aware of that. Uh, We're still trying to get the HVAC dialed in. If you're freezing, we're sorry. We're trying to trying to get that fixed. Hopefully, that'll be fixed by next week, and it won't be too hot or too cold in here. But we're working on that. Many of you came to GCF a while ago when GCF was a, was a much smaller church, and many of you prefer smaller churches because you prefer the relationships in smaller churches. But a church this size can still have that small feel if and only if you're involved in a small group. So let me encourage you if you're new to get involved in a small group, you're praying, well how do I do that? I have a solution. Go to the info center, fill out this card. It'll ask you name, email, phone number, and ask you what night of the week works best for you, and put that in the offering box, and someone will reach out to you this week and invite you to a home group. So just take one step, go to the info center, fill out this card, and we'd love to connect you uh, with a small group. We have, I think, 13 to 14 small groups across North Spokane, and uh, that is by far the best way to get involved in our church and to keep a a small feel when the church grows. Uh, With that said, let's, let's pray once again. And ask for God's help as we dive into this this theologically rich and challenging passage. Father, thank you. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for giving us the gift of singing. Father, thank you for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Father, we pray now that you would send your spirit. We confess that nothing good will happen now unless you send your spirit to move in our hearts and lives, and our minds. Lord, give us the gift of understanding. Lord, help us to worship you as the word of God is preached. I need your help, and I pray that you would fill me with your spirit as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stan Romanek says he encountered his first UFO on the outskirts of Denver. It was just after dark, he said, and I looked up, and there was this big reddish blue UFO in the sky. Romanok's video camera caught a shaky, it's always shaky, a shaky bright light in the sky. Others in the park that same night say they witnessed it too, and the video made it onto the local news. But that was just the beginning for Romanek, age 46, who belongs to a growing community of people who say they have been personally touched by extraterrestrials. Since then, Roman X says, he has been abducted by other life forms. Furthermore, he even claims that aliens came and knocked on his door at 2.30 in the morning. Now, what do we make of these astonishing, audacious claims? Well, usually when we hear claims like this, we roll our eyes and we move along. And we think, these guys... Or nuts. Well, in John 5, 17 to 18, Jesus made some astonishing claims. He claimed to be equal with God. And the Jews had a really hard time believing him. But they didn't just roll their eyes and moved on. They wanted to kill him. Now, why in the world did the Jews have such a hard time believing that Jesus was equal with God the Father. Don't forget that they they knew the Old Testament well, and the Old Testament says that God is immensely powerful. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present in the vast universe. He dwells in, in unapproachable light, and when people in the Bible confront him, they're often undone, terrorized with fear. Furthermore, the Jews were a fiercely monotheistic religion. Every Jewish child learned the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They're thinking, how in the world can Jesus, this man, be God, and God the Father be God? Doesn't that mean there's two gods? So the Jews had a really hard time believing the astonishing claim of Jesus, that he was equal with the Father. Maybe that describes some of you this morning. You're wondering, is Jesus really God? Does God even exist? If God does exist, is Jesus God? Hasn't science got rid of the need to believe in God? Well, this text in John 5, 17 to 24 is a very, very important text because it's one of the most significant texts on Christology, the doctrine of Jesus, in the Bible. In this text, Jesus makes some astonishing claims about himself, and he backs them up with evidence, proving that he is equal with the Father. Now, what you and I believe about Jesus is not a minor peripheral issue. There is no more important issue in life, period, than what you do with Jesus. And this text confronts all of us with the astonishing claims of Christ. In this text, we learn this, two points. Jesus is equal with the Father, therefore Jesus is able to save Equal with the Father, which makes him able to save. First, Jesus claims to be equal with the Father. Now, he defends his equality with the Father, that is his deity, by making four statements, and each statement begins with the word for, F O R. So in this passage, he makes these four, four statements, proving that he's equal with the Father. Well, how is he equal with the Father? Well, they're equal in their actions. Look with me at John 5.17, a little review from last week. When Jesus answered them, My Father, that is God the Father, is working until now, and I am working. He's He's saying there that God the Father worked on the Sabbath, therefore he was able to work on the Sabbath as well, because they're of the same nature. Verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So these verses teach what theologians refer to as ontological equality. That is simply this. Jesus and the Father have the same being, ontology. They are equal in glory, Equal in attributes, equal in power, equal in godness. They're equal in nature. They're both God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, by the way, are all equal in their ontology, ontological equality. Christ is saying, I am equal with the Father. We're equal. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Here's the first four statement. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Now, the Jews want to kill Jesus for claiming to be God. At this point, he could have said, whoa, whoa, calm down put those stones down, put those clubs, clubs, and I wasn't really claiming to be equal with the Father. Don't kill me or anything. Rather, he doubles down. (laughs) And he says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, what I'm saying is really, really true. (laughs) And really, really important. I'm not lying to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, And then he goes on. Verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In other words, the Father and Son are equal because they do the same actions. They share actions. There's one will in God. There's an ancient heresy that taught that there were two wills in God. No, there's one will in God. God the Father and God the Son share the same will, they do the same actions for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus does not have a separate plan that he's working. He's working the father's plan. And by the way, in the Bible, we see many, many times that the son is submitting to the father's will, but we never see the opposite. We never read that the father submits to the son. We always read the son submits to the father again, back to that earlier phrase, ontological equality. They are equal in being. Next phrase, economic subordination. They have different roles. The son submits to the father, at least in his earthly life. The son was always obeying the father's will. They have similar actions. They do the same things, proving that Jesus is equal with the Father. Now, these verses are taking us deep into the Trinity, aren't they? And deep into what's called Christology, doctrine of Christ. These are some of the most important verses in the Bible that describe the inner workings of the Trinity. And we see in these verses, again, ontological equality, equal in Godness, economic subordination, different roles or functions within the Trinity. Dave, why all this talk of the Trinity? This is a really important doctrine for Christians. God does not exist as three modes. God does not exist as three gods. God does not exist as one God in one person. We are trinitarian monotheists trinitarian three persons three distinct persons equal god the father god the son god the spirit monotheists there's one god not a contradiction a contradiction is three gods in one god or three persons in one person that's not what we're saying three persons in one god that's the doctrine of the trinity and again why is this so important Christianity is inherently, unmistakably Trinitarian. The Bible is a message from the Father about the Son, understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer, we are praying to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation was planned by God the Father, executed by God the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. When you evangelize, you're telling your friends how to be reconciled to God the Father through the Son, understood in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted by God the Father through the work of the Son, and that's made real to us, testified to us by the Holy Spirit. Don't avoid the Trinity. This is the heart and soul of the Christian religion. Without the Trinity, there is no salvation. Really, really important doctrine. Not to be avoided, but to be rejoiced in and celebrated. Back to our text. Not only are the Father and Son equal in actions. Equal in actions. In addition, they are equal in knowledge. Equal in action, equal in knowledge. The next four statement. Verse 20. For, Jesus says, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The father has a deep and abiding love for the son and the spirit, which is why he is always always communicating love to the son. The word love is in the present tense, meaning an ongoing action. God the Father is always loving God the Son and vice versa. The Trinity is a community of explosive love, Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other intimately for all eternity. And because the Father loves the Son, the Father is always communicating knowledge to the Son. Now, wait a minute, Dave. I thought that Jesus knows all things. He does in his divine nature. But Christ has two natures, fully human, fully divine. In his divine nature, he knows all things. In his human nature, God the Father was always revealing things to him. Why? Because God the Father loves God the Son. So, Jesus is saying that we're equal, me and the Father, because the Father and I share the same body of knowledge They're equal in actions. They're equal in knowledge. In addition, Jesus is claiming that they are equal in power. The third four statement, verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The Old Testament makes it very, very clear that only God has the power to raise the dead and bring new life to sinners. And Jesus is claiming that he too has the power to raise the dead and give new life to sinners. Aren't you glad that means that someday, if you're a Christian, all your suffering, all your your sorrow, all your pain will be gone because Christ will raise you from the dead bodily. No more sickness, no more sadness, no more suffering. Because Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead, more on that next week. He's saying he's equal with the Father. They're equal in actions, equal in knowledge, they're equal in power, in addition, they're equal in honor. This is the fourth four statement. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one. Isn't that interesting? We often think of God the Father as the one who's out to get us and judge us. Jesus is saying, the Father has delegated that role to Jesus. He's the one who will judge us. Which makes sense because he's fully God and fully man. And someone who's fully man has the right to judge mankind who's broken God's law. For the Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. No good Jew would ever say that. Honor the Son just as they honor the Father? Isn't that polytheism, Jesus? No. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The father has delegated the task of judgment to his son, Jesus. When the son returns, he will judge the world in righteousness. And because he's the judge, he is equal with the father. And, the, and Jesus says, um, because I have been given the task of judging, I'm equal in honor with the father as well. Then Jesus says these words that fly in the face of today's multiculturalism. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He's worthy of honor because he has the power to judge. And he's saying, if you don't honor me, you can't honor the Father. Implication. This means that Muslims do not honor God the Father. There was a big controversy at Wheaton College several years ago because one of the professors basically argued that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if you don't worship me and honor me, you dishonor my Father. Wow. Bold claims. This also means that Jews don't honor the Father if they don't honor and worship Jesus This also means that our Muslim friends don't honor the Father if they don't worship Jesus as someone who is fully God and fully man, a member of the Trinity, equal in Godness with God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus Christ is very clearly saying, if you want to honor the Father, you've got to honor, love, worship, obey, and respect me. You can see why the Jews, wanted to kill him. These are some pretty astonishing claims. And by the way, he proved all these things were true by rising from the grave a little bit later. Jesus and the Father are equal in actions, equal in knowledge, equal in power, and equal in honor. Therefore, Jesus is God. This is his formal legal defense to the Jews of the day. You've probably heard the saying, like father, like son. I have several sons. One of my sons loves music. I love music. Three of my boys have a really hard time getting up early in the morning. I walk in and I say, wakey, 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 and I clap. And they hate it when I do that. It's fun for me. (laughs) But here's the thing. This morning, my alarm went off at 5.30. I hit snooze not once, not twice, but three times. I, too, hate getting up early in the morning, just like my boys. One of my sons loves tennis. He plays five to six days a week, year-round. I love tennis. One of my sons loves reading. He'll read three, four, five hours a day. I love to read. One of my sons is very driven. He will clean the entire house, weed the yard, and pick up shovel snow for 30 minutes of video game time. He's driven. He wants what he wants. and Nothing's going to stop him from getting it. I'm the same way when it comes to particular things in my life. (laughs) One of my sons loves guitar. I love guitar. But I'm very, very non-musical. Like father, like son. My boys, for better or worse, are just like their father. Jesus is saying, like father, like son. I'm just like My Father, we are both God. We are equal in power and glory and majesty. Yet there's one God. Jesus is making some pretty (laughs) astonishing claims. If Jesus is God, He is enough. We don't need anything else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you have Jesus, you can lose everything and still be content. If Jesus is God, he's more valuable than all the money, power, sex, and treasures of the world. If he's God, he's omnipresent, which means that he will never, ever leave you or forsake you if you're his child. If he's God, he knows all things, including our deepest, darkest secrets and sins. And if you're a Christian, he still loves you and forgives you. If he's God, he's divinely wise, which means he can help you untangle your most complicated problems. If he's God, he has unlimited power, which means he has power to help you with your most significant problems. And if he's God, we must honor him with every single sphere of our lives. What we watch on TV, what we read, what we talk about, what we think about, how we spend our money, how we dress, where we vacation, all those things should be affected by our relationship with Jesus because he's God. He's divine, Equal with the Father. And if he's God, most importantly, his death on the cross was sufficient, efficacious enough to atone for all of our sins. Which brings us to the second point. First, Jesus is equal with the Father. And because he's equal with the Father, second, Jesus is able to save. The fact that he's divine, equal with the Father, gives him the ability to save. Well, how does he save? What does he actually do? Jesus saves by granting us eternal life. Look at verse 24 with me. Truly, truly, there's that phrase again. Which means I'm really, really serious and truthful when I say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Only an eternal being has the power, the ability to grant someone else eternal life. Because Jesus is God equal with the Father, he has the power, the ability to grant us eternal life. No one else can do that. Only an eternal divine being can do that. This raises a few questions. How do we get eternal life? How does it come to us? Look at verse 24 again with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes, Him who sent me has eternal life. Verse 24 does not say, whoever reads the Bible and prays and goes to church and is involved in a small group has eternal life. Doesn't say that. Or whoever recycles and drives an electric car and tithes and doesn't curse and swear. She has eternal life. That's not what he says. And this is the scandal of Christianity. Jesus says, whoever believes, hears and believes, that's all you have to do. Hear and believe. If you do that, that qualifies you to experience eternal life. That's it. Nothing else required. Well, what is eternal life? It's not 10-year life. It's not 10,000-year life. It's not 10-billion-year life. It's described as eternal life, which means it's eternal. It will last forever. Now, you and I can't even fathom what that means. We're so, so stuck in these short lives, 80, 90, 100 years, we, we can't even comprehend a billion years, let alone eternity. If you're a Christian, you will experience incredible joy and peace in a glorified resurrection body for all eternity, which means it will never, ever, ever end. And theologians speculate that as time marches on, you'll experience more and more and more and more joy. Why do they speculate that? Our joy is rooted in our relationship with God, in knowing God. God is a being of infinite worth and value and glory. We will never, ever, ever exhaust our knowledge of God. Ever. But as eternity marches on, We're going to get more and more and more knowledge of God, which means our joy will only increase for all eternity. There's a great book and a chapter on this called um, Heaven, Joy's Eternal Increase. As time marches on, it's hard to even fathom this, you'll have more and more and more joy as you learn more and more and more about God, and you'll never, ever, ever exhaust Knowledge of God, so it'll increase for all eternity. Wow. Eternal life is long, it goes on forever, but there's a quality of life to it as well. John 17:3, Jesus says, "And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life ultimately begins the moment you believe the gospel because it's rooted in your knowledge of the triune God. Now, we all want certain types of life, don't we? Some of us want the fit life. We want to be fit, lift weights, eat all the right foods, have the perfect body. Others want a wealthy life. They just want lots of money, thinking that having lots of money will make them happy. Others want a fun life, (laughs) lots of recreation and vacations. Others want a meaningful life. So they look to philosophy and literature. Others want an educated life, just getting advanced degrees. That'll make me happy. But what God offers is far better than all those things. He offers us not a fit life, a wealthy life, a fun life, a meaningful life. He offers us eternal life which is so much greater than all those things combined. Eternal life. Knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Eternal life is a relationship with God. Maybe you're thinking, I've experienced that a little bit, but right now I'm feeling kind of dry. and I'm not sensing God's nearness and God's presence. I get it. All Christians go through seasons of dryness and doubt. By the way, on that doubt issue, come to Sunday school. we 're working through all the apologetic issues. We'll talk about the problem of evil part two next Sunday at 8:45. But we all go through seasons where we doubt, we have fears, we 're not experiencing the joy we once experienced. And that's because although eternal life comes to us free of charge, it can't be earned. We simply believe the gospel and God gives us himself. It's a relationship and it needs to be cultivated. And we cultivate it through the ordinary means of grace, reading our Bibles and praying Engaging in fellowship. Those things don't make us Christians. But if you want to experience the joy of eternal life, you have to cultivate your relationship with Jesus. Like any relationship, it needs to be cultivated. This week, when you are stressed out, lonely, sick, tired, broke, scared, Remind yourself, you've been given eternal life. And it will last forever. When all the pain and stress is gone, you'll still have eternal life. Jesus saves by granting eternal life. But there's more. Jesus also saves by rescuing, rescuing us from judgment. He grants eternal life, and then he rescues us from judgment. Verse 24 again, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Have you ever wondered how it is that one person, namely Jesus, is able to atone for the sins of billions and billions of people over thousands of years. Think of all those sins. In the trillions, maybe? I don't know. Probably. Think of all the guilt that's built up over the years for all those people, all those sins. How in the world can one person, Jesus, pay for those sins on the cross by suffering for a couple of hours? How does that work? How does that work And God remain just? It works because Jesus is more than a man. He's the God-man. He's equal with the Father. He's a sacrifice worthy of infinite value because he's God. He is able to atone for the sins of all those who trust in him on the cross. He paid for our sins, received the judgment that we deserve so that you and I could walk away scot-free. Because he's God, he's able to atone for all of our sins by suffering and dying on the cross. And if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for your sins. Past tense, it's done, it already happened, which means you will never, ever, ever in the future have to pay for those sins. They're paid for. You're forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. They were all placed on Jesus and on the cross. He said, it is finished. No more judgment if you're a Christian. It would be unjust of God to have Jesus pay for your sins than to have you pay for your sins. Your sins have been paid for by someone who is equal with the Father. The question is, if you're a Christian, have you thanked Jesus recently? Have you really thanked him? And we thank him with our words, and we thank him with our actions. When we look at the love of God the Father and the love of God the Son and the love of God the Spirit in saving us, it should cause us to grow in love for Jesus and we love him by obeying his commands. Have you thanked him recently? Well, this text is pretty straightforward. Jesus claims that he is equal with the Father. And because that's the case, he is able to save. What we believe about Jesus really matters. In 2020, Legioner Ministries published the results of a massive survey on what Americans believe about Christian doctrine. Half of Americans polled thought that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 30% of self-identified evangelicals thought that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. A third... A third of professing evangelicals, self-identified, don't believe that Jesus is God, which means they're not evangelicals. Let's be clear on that point. 55% of Americans believe that Jesus was the first and greatest of all created beings. They were they're Aryans, essentially, from the fourth century. Now, sometimes the variety of opinions out there about Jesus cause us to wonder, Is the Bible unclear about the identity of Jesus? There's different opinions out there. Maybe it's unclear. (laughs) Jesus makes it abundantly clear in John 5, 17 to 24, what we're dealing with. He claims unambiguously to be equal with God the Father, which means he is the one who created all things and he is the one who created you. He's the one who gave you laws and he's the one who will come again to judge all of creation. What we believe about Jesus really matters. Nothing matters more It doesn't matter how much money you make, how many degrees you have, how many friends you have. None of that matters in the grand scheme of things. All that matters is simply this. What you believe about Jesus. Will you stubbornly refuse to believe like the Jews and face perdition for all eternity? I sure hope not. Or will you humble yourself and submit to his loving reign. I sure hope so. Let's pray.